for joining us for another episode of Emerging Environments. Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Joe Bennett and Audrey Turcott. Joe received his PhD from the Faculty of Forestry at the University of British Columbia in 2012. He then completed a postdoc at the University of Queensland in Australia and is now an associate professor at Carleton University, where he's the co-director of the Geomatics and Landscape Ecology Laboratory. As is evident in our chat, Joe has a diversity of research interests, including the development of prioritization approaches for conservation, invasion ecology, paleoecology, and spatial statistics. Audrey is a PhD candidate at Université de Sherbrooke in Quebec, where she is studying behavioral, physiological, and genetic responses of painted turtle populations that have been exposed to human-made barriers and activities. In 2018, Joe and his colleague, Steve Cook, selected Audrey to lead a graduate student project focused on exploring the shortcomings of Canada's Species at Risk Act, which you'll hear us refer to as SARA in our conversation. In 2021, this project, which involved a total of 10 authors, was published in the open access journal Facets with the title, Fixing the Canadian Species at Risk Act identifying major issues and recommendations for increasing accountability and efficiency. In our conversation, we walk through the main points of their article, focusing on their recommendations for improving the federal legislation. We discuss the possibility of an automatic listing process under SARA for species that have been assessed as at risk by the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, or COSIWIC, where currently Kosiewicz's recommendations are considered by the federal cabinet alongside other factors, such as the socioeconomic implications of applying protections to certain species and their habitats, a dynamic that sometimes ends in Kosiewicz's recommendations being rejected by the federal minister. Joe and Audrey also discuss their recommendation for improving the transparency and clarity of mandate regarding consultation and equitable recognition of Indigenous rights for those species listings that would impact Indigenous self-determination. We highly recommend exploring Joe and Audrey's article as it provides a comprehensive and highly accessible description of the Federal Species at Risk Act, a critical assessment of its shortcomings, and also several solutions that would drastically improve our ability to protect and recover at-risk species in Canada. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Joe Bennett and Audrey Turcott. Joe and Audrey, thank you so much for joining us today. So typically, we like to kind of get to know our guests a little bit before we kind of jump into the science and, and the research. So um, maybe Joe, starting with you, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, where you grew up and how you got interested in conservation. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I um, grew up fairly close to where I work now on a farm about uh, an hour from Ottawa. And it was a farm that... Uh, was mostly disused because it was pretty swampy land. My parents had other jobs and that meant that I kind of had the run of forests, swamp, fields, et cetera, when I was growing up. And I think that's how I fell in love with nature and how I eventually ended up working in conservation. I worked for government for a while, um, non-governmental organizations for a while as well. And I uh, eventually gravitated toward the uh, the freedom 
of uh, academia so that, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to freely express uh, one's views and hopefully make a difference through research. Mm-hmm. That's great. That sounds great. Is that in the Ottawa Valley where you grew up? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Uh, I guess it's St. Lawrence Valley, Ottawa Valley, kind of in between. And okay. that's uh, probably why you're detecting a very uh, sort of thick eastern Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, well, my dad uh, grew up some of his, his young life in that area as well. And Audrey, what about you? Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what brought you to um, your, your PhD that you're working on right now? Yes, so uh, do not worry with your accent, Joe. Uh, mine is worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I grew up uh, very close to Montreal. And after that, I did my undergrad studies at the University of Sherbrooke and also my master. So uh, before my PhD, I worked with birds, so very different, and also parasites. And after that, I moved to Iowa to work with turtles. And so, yes, uh, I saw also that um, in your question that... Uh, my project, that's true that they are very like diverse. And uh, and also during my childhood, I think I was in contact a lot with nature, a, a little bit like Joe, but uh, during the summer, my parents uh, had a cottage uh, close to Tadoussac, so where there is, uh, there are whales and everything. So mm-hmm. I passed a lot of time there close to a lake. And um, so maybe it's the first contact I had with nature. And I don't know where this interest in uh, science came from, but I had it <laughs> since the beginning of... Uh, if I'm thinking when I was in elementary school, I always liked uh, science and I always wanted to be a scientific or something like that. Mm, okay, just naturally curious about the natural yeah, world, I a, guess. The clue behind. <laughs> and, uh, and so a question, I guess a question for both of you, um, just to kind of give us a sense of like what you're thinking about these days. Are there any books or or projects um that have caught your interest lately that you want to share maybe joe starting with you so in terms of books that have caught my interest lately i tend to read things that are outside my field so (laughs) if uh if if possible during my work hours uh, I mostly read student papers, etc. During my outside hours, I'm interested in other things. Right now, I'm reading a book called uh, uh, Behave, and it's about the neurobiology of how we behave. And it's actually really relevant to our work because a lot of what I'm finding more and more is a lot of what uh, our research is showing is that the human element is vital in conservation mm-hmm. and the human element of, of uh, behavioral motivations is um, is vital. And so what started out as an entertaining read, I've got to confess, has become more of a work read because <laughs> of, uh, moving it to scenarios uh, where I'm hoping that we can influence conservation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So thinking about that kind of pro-environmental behavior and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Audrey, what about you? Is there anything? Um, it's a bit the same thing. I, I don't read a lot on on topic close to my uh, work, uh, outside my work. So mm-hmm. I'm maybe not a good person to <laughs> suggest some reading. Uh, but yes, yeah, so yeah, and I and I don't remember 
something a book or um, that that connect me with the science uh, sphere or anything but i remember when i was younger because you talk about early inspiration and it was one documentary on um, some biologists that were uh, capturing and manipulating uh, chipmunks i don't know where but it was a, <laughs> mm -hmm. a documentary from montreal and i was very impressed about uh, their work and it's maybe another clue about why i choose this path because it's inspire me to do that uh, to see that we can work in science and also with animals at the same time oh okay okay but no i have no really suggestion <laughs> about books and things uh, for the moment well you know i'm in the same boat i when i'm not working i'm like a fiction reader all the way pretty much kind of totally keep work and um and pleasure separate but um Yeah, if you find time to start your own podcast, sometimes people will send you books. Right. You yeah. The reason, <laughs> reason to read them. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, before we get into you know talking about the paper that was the main reason for reaching out to you both for a chat, um, we wanted to I guess dig a little bit more into your your research that you're doing. So Joe, so you you do a lot of different kinds of research, things like technical policy analysis, which is the kind of the topic of a paper that we'll talk about. But you also do lots of evidence syntheses, um, habitat fragmentation ecology. You study freshwater ecosystems. You're interested in paleoecology, all these various fields. So I wanted to ask you, you know, to what extent do you consider yourself to be an interdisciplinary scientist? And then if that's true, if that's a true statement, how would you characterize the nature of those, those disciplinary interactions? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember interviewing for a job in the UK in 2013. And at the end of the interview, the, the head of the panel said, Dr. Bennett, what do you do? <laughs> Because uh, it, it has been interdisciplinary for like quite a long time. And I'm actually, I'm proud of that. I really like it. I think that we can learn a lot of things among fields. So I would characterize my research as... Uh, applying and designing new techniques to better make uh, conservation impacts. That's, that's really where it's sort of gravitating. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of deliberately vague because, as you said, there's a whole lot going on within that. Um, I'm most excited right now about some tools we're designing for the Nature Conservancy of Canada mm -hmm. to help them prioritize where they allocate uh, land and also how they manage the land once they've allocated that. And I've been able to work with some amazing people doing that. Um, we've got a lot of really mathy work looking at ways of making uh, monitoring for threatened species more efficient. And I love that because I love the math. Of it. I just love the puzzle of uh, doing math. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not as practical. And so we're trying to design sort of like more practical versions of those those tools because they can get a bit esoteric and the most intimidating thing that we've got going on right now but also potentially the most fulfilling is trying to expand indigenous partnerships and mm -hmm. um, look for ways of um, working together with two different ways of kind of seeing the world to better achieve conservation outcomes so Those are broadly kind of what's going on right now or the things I'm particularly excited about anyway. 
Cool, cool. Yeah, the the indigenous led conservation. I think we'll come back to that because that comes up in your uh, your paper that we'll talk about. So, and Audrey, I mean, we I guess we already talked about this a little bit that you have a diversity of interests as well. Um, you know, you mentioned birds, and now you work on turtles, and and of course you contributed and led some of this po- policy analysis as well. So we're we we're wondering, you know, I know it's early days for you, but um, what sort of path do you kind of envision for yourself? Do you do you see kind of an interdisciplinary path forward as Joe has kind of laid out or something more specific? I never went in the research path because I want to do research. It's mm-hmm. a bit maybe weird to say that, but because I think I like to think about questions and I'm very curious. And that's why also my PhD have three different chapters. I'm working on physiology, on behavior, and also genetics. So that's maybe this is the main thing about my research is that I like to be diverse and a little bit like Joe explained that I think it's maybe it's difficult to work on many topics because you feel like you're not, <laughs> you're not the expert in all of these topics. That's some, me for me because I'm at the beginning of everything. But at the same time, it's nice to have a global view on everything also. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, I think that for me is to be able to do something in maybe 10 years that will have a real impact. Uh, I don't know, working in conservation and work directly in the field and try to uh, do concrete action to protect uh, our wildlife. Or maybe uh, I'm also doing vulgarization activities uh, also during my PhD for elementary and also high school. So I really like this aspect to share uh, science and also we're talking about the critical thinking with students. So I think I really like this aspect of research and I'm trying to do that even if I'm continue in the research but I hope that I will be able to continue to share uh, what I'm doing or what scientific do- are doing uh, talking with students they feel like there is no connection between scientific and uh, mm. also the main public so mm-hmm. I hope that will be something around around that in 10 years Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, science communication is <laughs> so important and yet often super challenging for a lot of scientists, right? So that's great that you're um, you're doing that already. That's exciting. So maybe we can move now into this, this main focal paper that uh, we love. We'll say that first <laughs> of all. I think it's one of the most interesting and comprehensive, I guess we call it a policy analysis paper, at least that I've seen in the past few years, uh, focusing specifically on the Species at Risk Act in Canada. Um, so we'll share the link to this in our, in our description and everything. So this, this was published in the Open Access Interdisciplinary Journal, uh, FACETS, um, and the paper's titled Fixing the Canadian Species at Risk Act, Identifying Major Issues and Recommendations for Increasing Accountability and Efficiency. So I imagine this was a pretty big undertaking to pull all this together. Um, and you, as I said, you've done an incredible job doing that. So we for, first wanted to ask you, you know, what was the main driver for producing this? Was this something that was sort of in the background for a number of years and eventually you just dove in? Or was it just a spur of the moment decision uh, after a group discussion or something like that? So you can go because it's uh, back from a course we, I took in. So Joe was the mentor of the course. This came from a lot of work that we've done in the past. So I've been working on species at risk topics, both um, federally and in 
uh, with respect to Ontario for a few years, but we'd never seen anything really synoptic. It was just kind of a, what we were hoping for as a kind of one-stop shop for how to fix and make more efficient species at risk protection in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that was really the uh, admittedly really ambitious idea. <laughs> and to make it further ambitious, uh, Steve Cook and I decided that it would be appropriate for a group project for graduate course. And uh, it was a bit risky proposing such a massive project for a grad course. And we were very, very lucky because we had Audrey and we specifically chose Audrey to lead the paper because we knew she's uh, so capable and smart because it it was, it was a massive undertaking. Kudos to Audrey. But the team was also very good. So the first, uh, during the course, we were uh, seven students and with Joe and also after that, other uh, people came uh, uh, to help us with the article but at the beginning it was seven students and the team was very great great i think uh, the relationship with everyone it was easy to start the first draft and after that uh, it took three years oh, I, it's a long time but it took three years to finish the paper and put everything together and because it's like you said it's a very big task uh, to also uh, for me it was uh, very new uh, i really like the idea to work on that and i'm feeling very lucky to be able to be uh, to participate in this project but uh, just to read uh, the act and also to understand all the topic because to be able to uh, coordinate this project i was i needed to go back on all the other section of everyone and to understand the, the topic even if i i'm not a specialist so all the section i already wrote some section and but uh, yeah so it was a very like um a nice thing to me because I, I learned a lot of things and I think it's a, a, a direction I want maybe work on in the future. Oh, that's great. So so in the paper, you kind of lay out the process um, in terms of listing species and um, developing recovery plans and all of that sort of you kind of describe what the process looks like at the moment. Um, and so we wanted to ask you a question about you know the committee on the status of endangered wildlife in Canada, Kasiwik, and in the paper you mentioned I think your focus is primarily on policy and legislative issues around the act. Um, but when it comes to Kasiwik recommendations, you also mentioned that sometimes the recommendations are rejected by by the federal minister. And this kind of is getting us more into maybe political <laughs> land um, territory a little bit. But we wanted to know, um, I guess, your take on on why why these rejections happen um, or or, you know, there may not be a one <laughs> one answer to that question. But um, to give us a sense of what your research uh, revealed about that part of it. That's a tough question, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, and and if you're not comfortable talking about, you know, politics, that's totally fine. So we could you can let us know if this question is <laughs> off the table or not. No, I'm happy talking about it. But would you like to go ahead, Audrey? Oh, no, you can start and I can uh, complete uh, after. Okay, sure. Yeah, sounds great. So, um, yeah, somewhere around a quarter of, of the species that are given a designation by Kosiwik 
have not been actually legally listed. And I would say the typical reason for this is economic impact. That is really quite typical. A lot of them happen to be uh, fish species that are either directly or indirectly harvested or impacted by harvesting. So that's really a common one. There's also a situation sometimes where there are bureaucratic um, delays. Like, so something is not listed just for a long time and something's kicked down the road and, and it can be a little bit um, difficult to tell why that's the case. Um, and I think it has to just do with bureaucratic delays or maybe hints of economic issues or something like that. My sense is this is, you know, talking about politics, this has become a bit less of an issue um, mm-hmm. with the Trudeau government. There have been some pretty major changes um, since the Trudeau government came in. I'll also say that sometimes some of the listing delays may not be, there may be some legitimate reasons for those if there is extended Indigenous consultation which can take time and effort and sometimes shouldn't be rushed. So, you know, just a little um, proviso there that if, if that's the case, then that's, that is understandable, of course, if, if it's not an emergency situation. But uh, otherwise, the bottom line is it's typically economic impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so one of your recommendations in the, the paper is, adopting some sort of automatic listing process. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Audrey, maybe you can uh, describe what uh, your recommendation in the paper. It's a little bit like uh, we can find actually in Ontario that the scientific independent committee like COSEWIC that we have at the federal level will We'll just use their recommendation and apply them directly. And after that, the first two, um, like the prohibition will can go go faster. So after that, we cannot kill them, not uh, <laughs> take them or destroy the, uh, their residency. But um, I think this is the more difficult uh, recommendation that we put in the article because mm. I think it's... Uh, will be yeah, there will be the, the the one that will be more difficult to apply so that's why we propose also another uh, alternative to that to just freeze all activities during the the process of uh, a listing to uh, try to avoid all the delay that can happen mm-hmm. because even in our group we didn't have the same opinion on that so i cannot imagine even with all the people that have a role inside all the process of uh, of listing and protecting a uh, species so um, yeah i cannot imagine to have everyone to agree on this subject mm. and that it will be applied at the long term uh, actually and the act so mm-hmm. oh that's that's interesting that you had internal kind of disagreements about this particular point as well and i guess just to maybe clarify that it's not that economic considerations wouldn't be, you know, part of the process, but um, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong in terms of interpreting your paper, but those would be something that come in when developing kind of recovery plans. And so, so those considerations would be, um, you know, accounted for, but just not necessarily at the listing stage. 
Is that right? Worked. It's yeah. supposed okay. to be after. So that's why we also talk that some some uh, uh, some minister will do a consultation during the listing process, but in the uh, in an ideal world, it's supposed to be after at least have the opportunity to protect a species, and after that, we can decide what the action we want to uh, apply. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the listing to list a species is just to give the the possibility to this species to be protected. After that, the action uh, we can manage ex- action considering all the impact that can have on all other um, aspects of our life. Mm-hmm. So Joe, you you mentioned there one of the reasons why delays can occur with the listing process can be you know extensive consultations with um, stakeholders and rights holders such as indigenous communities and people. And you you identify that as a sort of a, you know, embedded deficiency in the legislation itself. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on on the nature of that deficiency as you as you found it to be in your in your paper? So sorry, a deficiency in um, consultation with indigenous people and partnership with indigenous people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's a fascinating issue. And this is, you know, where I I probably will be a little bit controversial in in what I say. And then broadly, I think it's cultural. And I think it's cultural within the culture of the environmental movement. I think there's still this sort of remaining culture in the environmental movement where people often feel like species or ecosystems need to be protected from people and that people are kind of the thing we want to keep away from them. And I think that is imbued some of the thinking around whether or not Indigenous peoples should be included, partnerships should be formed, and whether Indigenous activities are good for the environment. And I think there's a ton of research that has very clearly shown that people who have lived in and stewarded not just Canada, but other places for thousands of years know how to do that. And so I think there's this cultural shift that really needs to happen. And I think that that sadly has imbued a lot of the kind of like management that has gone on. I'm not an expert on this as well, but one has to wonder whether there's institutionalized racism. And, you know, and it's not unique to Environment and Climate Change Canada. It's in other government departments. It's in academia. It's in society itself. I remember doing a research uh, paper with a a friend of mine on biodiversity on Indigenous lands. And biodiversity on Indigenous lands is higher or as high as it is in protected areas. And this is not just in Canada, but, but, but all over. And I remember mentioning this to an academic colleague of mine, and he said, jokingly that he felt that that might be because the animals were attracted to all the garbage around. This is the kind of attitude that is, was explicit in his play is in his situation, but I think maybe implicit in other people's situations. And it's a really sad thing. We do have a long way to go. I think in a more narrow sense, there are a lot of people who've got good motivation. There's a lot of people in environment and climate change, Canada, uh, in academia, elsewhere, who do want to do the right thing, really, really care. That's like, I think that the momentum is the right way, but there are serious capacity issues, both on the part of government and on, in, in Indigenous nations too. So on the part of government, it's really hard to change the way things are done. There's a lot of catching up to do, and it's not like you can snap a finger and make it happen for reasons that I've 
I've alluded to. And then on the part of indigenous uh, nations, I, I think that there is often people are dealing with all kinds of issues, uh, social issues, clean water issues, etc. And so um, uh, there's capacity issues. And, and rightly, I think indigenous peoples often think of all these issues being intertwined and government is tends to be a little bit siloed. So somebody's mm-hmm. in charge of economic issues, somebody's in charge of health issues, somebody's in charge of environment issues. And so I think that there needs to be kind of a, a, a rethink of how Indigenous partnerships are formed um, and capacity building on both in government and Indigenous uh, nations and communities. Yeah. yeah, I think in your paper, you, you mentioned there's sort of a, you know, unclear guidelines about what the nature of those interactions should look like. And so clarity, you know, seems to be clarity and transparency uh, of that process is, you know, a first step in, in the right direction there. Yeah, I agree. I think it needs to be built right into the legislation itself in a much clearer way. Um, especially because, like I said, Indigenous peoples are really good stewards of their of their land and we can learn a lot and so i think right there in the legislation a what's called a two-eyed seeing approach should be um should be solidified and so there's ways of uh, partnering and learning from each other that you right there so it's not a matter of um ambiguous wording and it's not a matter of choice it's a matter of having to do that yeah 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 so i'm i'm a climate scientists and very much on the kind of physical science side of things. So I was asking Stu a lot of questions about um, species at risk policy. Um, And so maybe I'll throw this one of the questions kind of I had, I'll throw it to you guys. And maybe Audrey, you can um, talk a little bit about this one. But I guess I was curious to understand um, you know, the, the interactions between, you know, this federal species at risk act and the territorial or provincial um, legislation, you know, protecting uh, threatened species within those jurisdictions. And and to what extent the Federal Species at Risk Act is synergistic or if there are kind of places where, you know, these these things um, kind of hinder each other, like the provincial uh, legislation versus the federal. Um, So maybe you could speak a little bit about those interactions and and maybe also how your recommendations might improve those interactions potentially. Karen's asking all the tough questions today. <laughs> I'm, so- <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm asking long questions too. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead, Audrey. But again, I'm not really, I don't really know the interaction they have together. I just, in my opinion, they everyone take their own place like the federal will stay in the position. I don't want to go all over a lot of the um, uh, provincial, territorial, or private land uh, decisions. So they have they have the possibility to do some to do action at some point. So there is three things that they can do. They can do a basic prohibition uh, safety net. So it's just to uh, apply the basic basic prohibition on the provincial and territorial land. But it was never employed in the past. So it's just to ask them to not kill, not harass, not destroy a residency like I talked earlier. After that, they can also do a similar thing with the critical habitat. So they can decide to uh, 
again on provincial and territorial land so not on the private land so it's just very like on these land and it's to not the private destruction of critical habitat so it's very simple like that but again never use i think so it's another problematic with that is that they cannot be applied on private land mm. so it's just provincial and territorial so after that also the law the way the law is written is that there is a lot of use of discretionary term. Mm -hmm. So it gave place to the, the federal government to not take action on this possibility. So they will just, they can, because in the law, it's often uh, written, must recommend if the minister is of the opinion of. Mm -hmm. so there is a lot of, discretion that they can use to not use this action and also at the end there is the emergency order so it's in the um actuality in the last few years uh, we we maybe you saw a lot of uh, article on that uh, especially in quebec with the western frog western uh, core frog i don't remember the name so uh, I, they use this action but it's not because the federal decide to do that it's because some conservation uh, organization decide to bring this case at the court to uh, force a little bit the federal to use their own action because prevent because it was first on private land so mm -hmm. the two first possibility was not applicable it's just the, the last one the emergency emergency order it was possible to use okay and and when so for example with the emergency order is what what happens in that case like is there kind of like a timeline like the province is kind of given some um, recommendations to kind of deal with this on their own or does kind of the federal government take over or what what does that look like when that happens a good question for me <laughs> and my, uh, i don't know for uh, i mean i don't know if there is policy on that that explain all the steps but i don't think so in the law the act there is nothing about that Oh, okay. So I think maybe it's part of all the difficulty to use these actions because it was not used often and we don't mm -hmm. know really how to apply them. I'm not sure. Yeah, hmm. I think I think I was just going to say quickly, I think the, the last time I checked, there was a draft document, which is still uh, I think this is maybe a year ago that is still is still in works to try and define what that interaction actually looks like. I don't know. Joe, did you have you looked at that recently? No, I haven't, but that's my uh, understanding as well. And so it, it, it is a bit vague because it's so rarely applied. But mm -hmm. um, essentially, I think the, the spirit of it is that um, if an emergency order is put down, then it's as if it's federal land, which means that Species at Risk Act applies there. Mm, okay, I see. Now, it, it's not assuming it is federal land, but it applies as if it was as if federal it was. land. Right, yeah, right. exactly. So it's not expropriated or anything like mm, that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but Species at Risk Act applies there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And Audrey, you mentioned that, you know, it's not it's not the federal government kind of stepping in out of its own volition. It's usually sort of some court case that's filed. And, and so one of your recommendations, which I thought was really interesting, was um, sort of to set up kind of a, a separate kind of, I guess, um, 
uh, I can't remember what the term yeah, you specialize a tribunal. Yeah. yeah, sorry, tribunal, exactly. To to deal with, you know, specifically kind of these types of cases that come up rather than going through kind of a formal court process. And so you mentioned some examples of, of other countries that do this. And uh, it, I'm curious to know whether that's, you know, something that has been considered seriously in any way uh, at the federal level. I think that is a solution that people like mm-hmm. when like uh, in this, but I think it's a big step to do, but I think it's possible because there is already environmental tribunal in Canada. So it's not mm-hmm. difficult to, but it's not difficult. <laughs> I, I guess that it's, like I said, a big step to do. So there is uh, maybe, there will be maybe resi- resistance, but it's, there is all, already a framework to put that inside and it will, I think it's one solution that can help in many aspects of all the many problems that the, the act have at the moment. And we don't need to really modify the act because I, I know that people don't like the idea to open the act and modify mm-hmm, things inside. Mm-hmm. So this solution will maybe help to not do that, to help to have people to agree on solution and to, because people like to go in front of the court <laughs> People in in the conservation world like to go in front of the court to have case that um, will be able to use like, um, I don't know the word, but uh, they can use after that this case to uh, win other case. So So, uh, a lot of people think that is the way to go with, uh, to correct many problems inside the act uh, compared Mm -hmm. to modify it. So I think it's a good solution to, uh, to even if it's a big one. Mm. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there, you know, there's been a, lots of contestations of the federal legislation, and it's often, yeah, NGOs or groups like Eco Justice uh, right. sort of binding together to hold them accountable. And as you said, yeah, it, it is. It has been a good way to drive action where there's been this backlog of recovery strategies which have been on the shelf, and those court cases really spur the action and, and get them off the shelf. Um, it just becomes a matter of you know reallocating resources to different different um, bodies and different agencies, I guess. Um, so, you know, we, you've, you've done a great job of digging into all these limitations of the federal legislation. Um, and I'm sure we could talk about this all day because it is such <laughs> a, co- a complex topic. But just to to kind of build on th- some of the things we talked about or mention a few different things, can you maybe think about a few, two or three things that are easily uh, enacted in Canada that can that can help to protect species better, and then conversely, maybe a few things that might be a bit harder but might make a big difference. Maybe Joe, do you want to start there? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, in terms of the easy things, I think providing uh, financial incentives for protecting provincial and territorial lands uh, and private lands as well, and some of this is being done. I mean. The federal government does deserve credit for, uh, for example, the Priority Places uh, Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I think building on those is an easy thing to do that doesn't require legislative changes. And it's not going to make the provinces angry if somebody's coming and offering them money that they you know, could, uh, could use. I think that that is a relatively easy thing. The provinces have the land. Um, the federal government has the will 
and to an extent, the financial resources. So it uh, makes sense. I think another thing that's maybe not so easy, but uh, important is to start to build on some of the early momentum in improving Indigenous partnerships. So I think the federal government and Environment and Climate Change Canada do deserve credit for some initial work. And building on that, I'm hoping that it'll start to create a momentum of its own so that as more partnerships are built, the subsequent ones become easier. So maybe not easy at the beginning, but could be uh, easier as time goes on. I think another relatively easy thing that um, could be done is looking at data deficient species. Right. So these are the ones, you, you, yeah, we, we don't really know much about, but we got a bad feeling about like that they might be in trouble. In that case, there's really good research on ways to use various characteristics of the species and machine learning to try to prioritize which ones we can kind of do research on. Because to be perfectly frank, a lot of threatened species research happens because people kind of like the species. You know, they love killer whales. They love, um, well, peregrine falcons people used to do a lot of, I'm sure still do a lot of research on, mm -hmm. you know, th that kind of thing happens. So if we've got a more systematic ways of directing our resources uh, for monitoring and for that matter, for um, prioritizing actions among the species, that does not require legislative change. So those are the easy ones. Mm -hmm. Hard ones, automatic listing. I am uh, one of the people who is in favor of that. Okay, it's hard, but you get one chance to save these things. And uh, they're part of what makes Canada beautiful. So yeah, it's going to be hard, but sometimes the right thing is hard. Um, I think that inclusion of uh, two-eyed seeing approach and engagement with Indigenous peoples, like putting that right in the act, probably difficult, just because, you know, it needs to be very carefully put into the act. I also think that removing some of the discretionary language in uh, Species at Risk Act, I mean, we're not lawyers, and so I love to call for that. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I hate when I see something, it's like may, that really, sh I think, should be must in the act. Um, but I'm going to ask for it anyway, uh, <laughs> even though I bet you it's hard. So I think those, those are, to me, the easy things and the hard things. And yeah. I don't know, Audrey, I probably missed some things. But I agree with the difficult thing. Uh, for the, the, um, the easy thing, I have maybe one or two things to add. You talk about the insensitive or uh, to maybe um, distribute the money more efficiently uh, for species that we don't have a lot of information. But there is already a program, a program about... Um, the name of this program is Habitat Stewardship Program for Species at Risk. And this program is actually not really user-friendly. If you go online, you have a really canny federal government page. And there is other countries that have similar programs like Australia, where it's very user-friendly, a lot of image. We can see the result of this project. So the goal mm -hmm. of that is to give money uh, for uh, organization or a citizen that want to uh, do research and bring more information uh, and also do conservation action. And I think we can use this program better uh, to give a better access and see what are the results of the, these um, uh, projects. And um, also it can be used for data deficiency species because you can ask, you can give maybe a grant for uh, this species and some people will um, 
maybe compete on this grant. And after that, we will have at the end more information on this species that we don't have a lot at the moment. Another thing that is not really user-friendly, maybe Joe, you will be able to agree with that, but um, just the registry of species at risk. If you want to have information, it's not really to, um, it will not really, really help to uh, protect species, but if you, we want to have information, find, for example, the threat of a species and if this species have an action plan at this moment, it's just difficult to find the information easily. If I want to see, for example, if a species is affected by climate change, I'm not able to find it at the moment. I need to just extract everything and after that, find the information in each document. So it will help to have, uh, it will help research maybe find a problem, also go deeper. I know, Joe, that you have students who did that, just open everything and to find, for example, the proportion of species that are, that are not listed, you need to open everything. So mm -hmm. at the moment, the, the, the platform is not very efficient for people outside the, the government. Yeah. And Joe, you mentioned um, uh, machine learning uh, potential <laughs> for data deficient species. Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? What would that look like? I think, uh, yeah, so <clears throat> this isn't research that was uh, conducted by, maybe it was conducted by um, some people in Australia, Lucy Bland, I believe, uh, led it. And essentially, you can take the characteristics of the species, and then you can look at other species elsewhere that share characteristics, and you can gather information from other similar species and what their trajectories have been mm. to kind of fill in some of the potential gaps for data deficient species. And that doesn't mean your job is done and you know what that species is all about. But then at that point, you know whether something is potentially really in trouble and then you should prioritize research to actually um, ground truth these uh, assumptions. So it can get you kind of like partway there so you can figure out whether you need to do monitoring urgently for, say, a frog species versus a grass species, depending on, you know, who they are, where they live. So right. I think that that could really, really help because it's a bit of an overwhelming issue. Sometimes people gather a ton of data on like one species. And then sometimes like looking through the species at risk registry, there's almost nothing. And there's almost nothing even academically about some species. Yeah, we have these, you know, ecosystem reports that come out with our uh, signing on to the, Co the Convention on Biological Diversity. I think every five or 10 years, we see these reports come out that sort of track what we know about which groups of species, and they're always these, these huge deficiencies. So that, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'd be curious to uh, dig into that paper. I guess maybe another difficult question, potentially, <laughs> but um, one of the things that came to my mind while I was reading your paper was... Um, Who's going to do all this work um, in terms of, you know, research or, for example, you know, going through the act and, and looking at this discretionary language? Like, so I guess the question is, you know, to what extent do we have, does the federal government or academia have the resources to do some of this, this work that you guys outline in, in your paper? I would let you answer first on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So I think to an extent there are uh, resources um, there. There are some amazing people working for federal government, for example. Around Indigenous issues, yeah, they definitely need more. 
uh, resources because that, that, you know, that's a really big issue. And, and a lot of those resources should go to the Indigenous nations and communities themselves. I think, and this is my just my opinion, is that things could be done more efficiently. Often in government agencies, there are long chains of command and things can get uh, bogged down. So I think maybe people can look at having a more labile and efficient way of sort of making some of these changes without things going sort of up and down chains of command quite so much. And that's easy for me, right, as an academic to talk about those things. You know, there is a major issue that, like I said before, the federal government has at this moment a lot of will and some uh, resources. And the provinces, it's a real sort of mixed situation. BC doesn't even have uh, endangered species legislation. So I think better partnerships can help make these resources flow better to, to make some of the changes we're recommending. So, yeah, I mean, some of them are going to be hard. But some of them also are maybe a matter of making better partnerships. So I think we're nearing the end of our time with you. Um, so we want to thank you both so much for making the time to to join us today and work through this paper, which you know, we will be sure to share the link. Uh, it is open access. So we'll share that in our, our description. I think personally, as as I mentioned to you uh, before, Joe, I think it's you know one of, if not the best, policy analyses of the federal legislation that I've seen out there. Um, I think it's just amazing. It covers all these different aspects and it has this positive, actionable outlook. So congrats to both of you on, on this work and the team that put it together. I think it's stellar and I'll, I'll be using it in my policy class for, for years to come, <laughs> I'm sure. Because the students, you know, they, they constantly want to know why things aren't working well or how they can work better. And this points things in a positive direction. So congrats for, for pulling this off. I think it's amazing. Thank you. I think the nice thing about the article is just that it's bring everything together. Because mm -hmm. if you, you can find a good article, because we talk about a lot of them and the our manuscript but to bring everything together i think it was the missing piece uh, in canada about this uh, this act mm -hmm. definitely it's got a comprehensiveness which is uh yeah you don't see it in a lot of the other critiques of the species at risk act there are like loads and loads of quantitative analyses out there which have their place and they're valuable but to have this um you know multifaceted uh examination i think is is, is amazing yeah. So thanks again so much for joining us and sharing your work and your stories. Uh, and we wish you both, you know, all the success uh, <laughs> coming to you. And uh, Audrey, congrats on, I guess you're nearing the end of your PhD now, or are you towards yeah, the end? Yeah, close to the end. That's In exciting. A few months, I hope, to finish. Oh, great. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it. Bye. Have a nice uh, end of the day. You too. <laughs> Bye.